The first thing that Jesus says after the Beatitudes in his Sermon on the Mount is immediately, you are salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. What does that mean for us as Christians as Jesus really lays down the expectations for his disciples then and you and I as disciples now? This sermon was originally recorded at Castle Rock Middle School, February 9th, 2014. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. We are in the book of Matthew still, and I am enjoying this more than I thought I would. I probably shouldn't say that. I, I was kind of looking forward to this and just spending time in one particular book from section to section. Hopefully you've enjoyed it as well, because you get a feel, as we said, how Matthew functions, how Matthew talks, and Matthew's purposes. Uh, one announcement about grow groups, which I push. Soon we will not be pushing grow groups, because they start up this week. We've got grow group uh, on Tuesday. Wednesdays and Thursdays. So if you're looking for a spot, if you have not signed up, this would be a great time to do it. I'm sure you will enjoy it. Even if you have signed up, I'm sure you will enjoy it. So that's not conditional. You will enjoy it regardless. The section that we're looking at today is in the book of Matthew. And last week, we just got to do a little bit of review and why it's necessary we talk about it. Uh, Last week, we talked about the Beatitudes. So we have the Beatitudes that Jesus gives. And I think it's one of the more confusing sections of Scripture, but I want to review two, which I think are the most essential. Oh, another announcement about Grow Groups. If you can see this, this is the um, media player that we have on our website. If you have never downloaded questions for Grow Group, I've actually got a rough draft for this week's questions. So they will be here. They'll be up today. So you can go and see the arrow points there. So you open up the media player. This is usually where you'd listen to the audio that hits play over here, and then right there, there'll be a PDF. If it's not there by Tuesday morning, uh, send me an email. That just means something happened that it didn't get up. So that's the way you can do that. But here's a review of the, um, the Beatitudes that we wanted to look at, and we did look at last week. So blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Why are these two so important? These two are important because Jesus is about to give a 12-minute sermon that has all kinds of difficult things. And unless you understand where you sit with Jesus, it's going to be really confusing. Because uh, you can imagine the disciples get done with the Sermon on the Mount, if you're familiar with it at all. And they start to think like, wow, uh, I've lusted in my mind. I've hated my brother. I haven't been a great peacemaker. How would you feel at the end of this sermon? As I usually do when you read that sermon, you're like, wow, I thought I was making the cut. Not, not so much. You're going to feel terrible, as we will 20 centuries later after he gave it. We'll feel terrible unless you understand this. Jesus is saying to you as his disciples, this is who you are. You are blessed because you recognize your own sinfulness because you mourn over those sins. You don't stand in front of the mirror and say, I am pretty awesome. Instead, you stand in front of the mirror and you say, I have no right to God's grace. And Jesus, in turn, says, you are my child, uh, you are mine, and I want you to live like this, which gets to expectations. Expectations are uh, an interesting thing. How many of you, um, I got a chance to see Joe Hunsaker at the hospital. He's the boy that we prayed with that had the damage to his neck. So has anyone ever been to a hospital? That visit went well. I got to talk to his parents. Um, (laughs) Who designs hospitals? Like, I don't know if they design it, like, they have no idea of expansion or something like that. If you've ever been, I've never been to a hospital that is not designed by a wizard. Like you get there and you work at hospitals. How do you find where you're going? You go to, the, you park here, you go across a sky bridge, and then you go like down an elevator, up an elevator, through another sky bridge. It's so bad at Swedish to get to critical care. You show up and I asked the lady like, where am I going? I'm trying to get to critical care. She's like, follow the brown line. And I look in the tiles 
like it's like Tron. Like the tiles are set up so you look like a little rat and you just like follow. No one's looking at each other. They're just following and you go through circles, up things, down things, and you get anywhere where you're going. You could make money if you just designed like a big enough hospital to begin with. So that's expectations. So that's the frustrations with directions and finding where you're going. What does this have to do with what we're talking about? Um, expectations are pretty important. When people ask, like, who, what's the worst boss you ever had? So some of you just had it like that. Some of you smirked, like, immediately. Some of you maybe are experiencing the worst boss you've ever had. The worst boss you had, as I explained to my kids, is not the one that is really strict. Like, sometimes they'll complain about a teacher. They're like, oh, they're so strict. I'm like, that's not bad. Strict is okay. Um, what about the teacher that expects a lot of you? Is that bad? I, I, I try to explain to my kids, that's, that's not bad either because sometimes uh, the best bosses you've ever had, the best coaches you've ever had, the best teachers you've ever had really expected more than you thought you could give. And you're in this situation, you're frustrated, and you think, how can this get through? But then through incrementally, you look back and you say, I was able to uh, be involved in something bigger and better than I ever thought possible. So there's some satisfaction in that. So who are the worst bosses? Architects who design hospitals. That's number one. And number two, why would that be terrible? Because what I'm talking about is there's no expectation that lets you know what a win looks like. Have you ever had a boss like that? That you go to work and you're like, I guess I'll work on this. And you work and work and work and you think they're going to be really happy, but you have no idea if they're going to be happy or not. Have you had a boss like that? Or a teacher where you work and work and work and and they're like, no, actually I want you to be doing this. You're like, you could. And so you're not spending time on the things you should be spending time. You're spending time on the things you shouldn't be spending time. And it feels like you're spinning wheels and you get frustrated. Even relationships are like this. Have you been in a relationship outside of the boss-employee relationship, outside of the teacher-student relationship, just maybe you dated someone and you had no idea if they'd be happy or not happy any given moment? Something happens and you come home and you can't look at your current spouse. I mean, that's not, you can't do that. But, I mean, um, you've probably been in a relationship where it's just un- you don't know. You're like, is this good? Is this bad? You're really excited about something, and then they're frustrated. You're like, I don't know what's going on. The scripture has a word for that, in fact. It says, as you deal with your kids, it says, don't exasperate your kids. Do you know that? And I think the primary way that comes from it also says, listen to your parents, by the way, as I see kids look at their parents. That's the number one command, I think. It's written twice, I think, if you look. So listen to your kids, but um, the kids listen to your parents, but as parents, you need expectations. Your kids know, need to know what to expect. They need discipline. They need boundaries. This relieves uh, it, being frustrated, exasperated, depressed, and all these things that go with it. What does this have to do with what we're talking about? You're believers. You're a child of God, and it makes perfect sense that you say, God, what do you want from me? We would have a frustrating relationship with God if God never communicated to us his expectations. We just said, God, you're holy. I'm going to wing it here. I'm going to sacrifice some animals to you. I'm going to try and do really uh, good things. Um, I'm going to do my best. But God does communicate to you. And you're not the first person to ask this question. The disciples are going up on this mountain. So remember, there's crowds of people, and the disciples go up this mountain, and Jesus starts to teach them. And first he establishes, remember the Beatitudes, who you are? And this is not determining of your relationship. So we've got to spend one, one more second on this. Is uh, how your kids behave determine your relationship with them? You love them no matter what. And that's essentially your relationship. And I want to underline this again. Christ
Christ does not like have a checklist like, okay, haven't quite made the cut, haven't made it yet, haven't made it yet, okay, you make it. No, your relationship with Jesus is determined, this is how Jeremiah says it, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Isn't that cool? So before God even made you, God already knew you. So 2,000 years ago, Jesus' perfect life, innocent death, Uh, victorious resurrection determined your relationship with God. 60 years ago, uh, 50 years ago, 40, 30, 22 weeks ago, when the Holy Spirit came to you through baptism, or the Holy Spirit came to you through his word, that determined your relationship with God. All we're asking today is, God, what do you want from me? You're not the first person to ask, and this is what Jesus says to his disciples who are wondering this very same thing, God, what do you want from us? He says, you are salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown and trampled underfoot. What does this mean? How many of you remember this as a kid, and what's the part that bothered you the most? I think I probably heard 20 sermons on this, and the thing that bothered me the most was, can salt really lose its saltiness? So just so you're not distracted, I did a little research, um, Salt as we know it is uh, sodium chloride. It cannot actually lose its saltiness. It's very stable, and it, it, it just doesn't. And the salt that we have is pure, and it has just a few other things in it so that it flows, and it's not like a clump, and you have to sit and rub this clump for salt, so we've got a few other things. However, that's not how salt was harvested in Jesus' day. So I don't know if this picture will come through. This is in Vietnam, so if you get your salt from, like, Costco and you get the sea salt, how many of you are sea salt people? Is, is Morton's even in a business anymore, I wonder? Because like, everyone I know has one of these cracker things that you spin in, whatever they're called. What are they called? Salt, salt shaker, I would have gotten that right. Salt shaker that spins and cracks salt. There we go. That's what they're called on the package. So this is how they do it. Do you know how they do it? I had to think in your mind, what's your theory on how they, sar- they, they uh, harvest salt? I had a couple ideas, and... I'm not going to tell you if they're right or wrong. But what they do is they have shallow pools. So they'll collect seawater. That's salty, obviously, in the Himalayas and other. That's really popular now, the pink salt. So they, they put it in these pools, and then they expose that, of course, to the sun and the wind. And eventually it starts to evaporate. And it becomes more and more salty. It's that there's more minerals inside of this. It gets thicker and thicker. Has anyone been to the Dead Sea? Okay. Uh, my parents went to the Dead Sea. You cannot actually go underwater in the Dead Sea very easily because it's so buoyant. It is so packed full of minerals. That's essentially what is happening to these, like, these little ponds. So these ponds get thicker and thicker and thicker. And when it gets to a certain consistency, uh, maybe for a science project, you try that. My daughter made some geodes, and we had to put uh, sugar inside, and we sit and try and dissolve it. And, we try, and eventually you can't get any more in it. It's just so thick with minerals. That, when it gets to that point, then they start to uh, harvest this, and they put it in these piles as it dries out, and they pull it out. So can that kind of salt lose its saltiness? At Jesus' day, it, it, it kind of could in this sense. So just imagine, um, I'll put that away so you're not distracted. Here are uh, the perfect salts, right? This is the salt inside the water, and it's really awesome. However, along with that are other minerals, so it's like this. Those other minerals aren't necessarily water-soluble. You're like, why did it come to church today? He's talking about salt. Um, but salt is, so you can imagine if it did get wet, this, the salt minerals could eventually be dissolved and pulled away. And for science people, you're looking at me, hopefully this makes sense. And you could, in a sense, have things that look like salt, but really the salt has disappeared and all you have left is the remaining minerals. Everybody on the same page. 
Like, whew, now I understand what Jesus is talking about. Um, You are salt of the earth. Uh, This will apply to your life in a minute. Um, You are salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? I still think it's confusing. There's a guy named Jeffrey Gibbs who makes, I think, a compelling argument to say this. We should take this in parallel with the next section of verses. So the next section says this. You are light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people find a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. What is the purpose of the light? Jesus is saying you are light of the world. So what's your purpose? To give light to the world. And essentially that's what Jesus is saying. You are the ones who give salt to this planet. So the opposite end of that, this is Gibbs' argument, is that how is the world going to be salted if you're not the one who does it? That's essentially his argument. And I think it makes a lot more sense. Jesus is saying you are salt of the world. You're the ones who salt and make this world better. If you're not going to do it, who is? Russell Wilson had a similar argument during the Super Bowl. He's a Christian guy, and he played at Wisconsin for a year, so he's, it's hard not to like him. So here's Russell Wilson. Do you remember the question that he asked at, at the beginning of the season? Did anyone see his interview? His question was this. He asked the other teammates, why not us? And Jesus comes to you and says, you are salt and light of the world. Why not you? Who is better equipped to change the world than those who know the real leader of the world? Who is better to bring peace to a world than those who actually know peace in their heart? Who is better equipped than you to be the ones that change the world? That's God's question essentially to you. God says, I want you to change the world. When Steve Jobs tried to recruit uh, John Scully, and I'm not advocating for Steve Jobs, he just has good products, he said this, do you want to sell sugared water? This is a famous quote. Do you want to sell sugared water for the rest of your life? Or do you, he worked for Pepsi at the time. He did the Coke versus Pepsi thing. That's John Scully. Uh, do you want to, work, want to sell sugared water for the rest of your life? Or do you want to come with me and change the world? John Scully left and went to go change the world. Isn't that compelling? Wouldn't it have been cool, and maybe you don't even like Apple products, but wouldn't it have been cool to have been like at the ground floor of seeing like the world's kind of change in technology? Wouldn't that have been cool? Wouldn't it have been cool, even maybe you're a Microsoft person, to be there right at the beginning while Bill Gates and uh, they're hammering away programming stuff, and suddenly you're like, this is going to change things forever. Wouldn't it be cool to be at the ground floor? There's, in the film, The Bible, has anyone seen it on the History Channel? Okay, it's pretty good, pretty well done. There's a scene that I remember distinctly. You can't see it. Um, Jesus kind of looks like Pierce Brosnan. Um, but he comes and he talks to Peter, and he, he calls Peter to follow him. And in the movie, he says, well, what are we going to do? And Jesus says, we're going to change the world. Deep inside each of us is this desire to do something special. Deep inside each of us is this desire to change things. When you were a kid, what did you dream of being? How many of you are like, I'd like to be a computer tech, and I'd like to be a pastor, or I want to be, we're like astronaut, right? I mean, if every kid got to do what they want to do, we'd have like two million people up on the, the moon right now. They're like, I don't know, what are we going to do? I mean, because everyone wants to do something that's utterly amazing. What, what's happened? What's happened? Have, have you changed the world? Do you feel like you have? 
Why do we have like midlife crisis, the average age 54? Because you step back and you look at your life and you say, you know what? The great, at 37, I'm, I'm, I consider myself mature. I'm about to have this midlife crisis. You look back and you say, what's the greatest thing I changed last week? Like my sheets and the oil in my car, right? You're not, do you feel like you've really had this influence? I've been salt and light through baptism for 37 years. And you step back and you say, what have I done? Really? You ever ask yourself that? Do you feel like you're changing the world and you're inspiring people and like kids are crying after your, your teaching lessons and, and you do your thing at work and people are like, I haven't got a non-sarcastic slow clap, I think, in about a decade. You know, like, when is the last time that you felt like you really did something? Here's the thing. Philosophers talk about this. Aldous Huxley talks about it. I wanted to change the world, but I found that the only thing I can, the only, the only thing one can be sure of is changing it oneself. And I pulled this one out of honor of the Olympics. This picture of Leo Tolstoy was actually in the Olympic ceremony. Did you see it? It just looked like a bearded older guy. This was the picture from it, so I was pretty excited about that. Everyone thinks of changing the world. He's an author. Um, everyone thinks about changing the world, but no one thinks of changing himself. Christ, this is not a sermon about changing yourself. It's really not. This is not some help, self-help deal. Um, Christ has already changed you. Christ has already made you amazing. Christ has already said you're a son of God and a daughter of the king. Christ has already done that for you. You have a relationship with the holy God. What Christ does call you to is to be extra, extraordinary in just the ordinary things. You might not be a cancer researcher. You might not be the president of the United States. You might not be in a position where you feel like, I can honestly change the world tomorrow. But you do have relationships. You do have positions. And a lot of these things are just ordinary. Maybe you're called to be a student. Just think in your head. I'm asking you, if you're a student, how can I be extraordinary in this call that God has given me? How can I be the student that respects my teachers when no one else does? How can I be the one that works hard and tries to honor God in the way that I do things? How can I be the student that doesn't talk about other students, doesn't make fun of other students, but instead loves and cares for people? Ask yourself that. You're an employee. How can I be the light of Christ in this dark world? How can I be salt in a world that so needs it? How how can you do that? Ask yourself that. How can I, in my ordinary existence, be extraordinary? Can you be the model of ethics in your job? Can you be the model of working hard? Can you be the model that people stop and say, I want to do it like she does it. I want to do it like he does it. Talk about ordinary. Uh, How many of you are parents? This is not very extraordinary to tell you the truth. There are billions of parents on the planet. The question is, how can I be an extraordinary parent? How can I let Christ's love shine through me? And how can you be generous and kind and have parameters, and you have discipline, and expectations that are clear, how can I show my kids Jesus? That's extraordinary. That's amazing. You might not even have the most awesome marriage. Again, that's ordinary, isn't it? There are billions of people on this planet that are married. And maybe your marriage currently is not awesome, but my question is, how can you be awesome in your marriage? How can you wake up and say, God, how can I with the gifts you've given me, love someone unconditionally. Just imagine what your marriage would be like if you just step back and say, 
I am going to be the most extraordinary husband or wife that this world has ever known. Just keep that to yourself, right? You don't need... But just imagine what that relationship would be like if you weren't judgmental, if you weren't cutting the other person down, if you were kind and loving and always gave them the benefit. What would that relationship be like? What would our relationships be here if we had a group of people that said we are going to love like that? One of the things that we talk about here at church is being the best neighbor your neighbor ever had. Be the best one they've ever had. Just like dream with me for a minute. How can I really be the best neighbor my neighbor's ever had? What does it look like in your mind? Because my question to you, if you're not the one who prays for your neighbor, who does? If you're not the one who loves and listens to your neighbor that no one really likes, who does? If you're not the one inviting them to worship and know God, who does? Why not you? We're not called to, to just do extraordinary things and be amazing and win Super Bowls. That's not what our call is. God has called each of us to individual spots that are really pretty ordinary. But in those spots, he says, I want you to be extraordinary.